Welcome to A History of Violence, a podcast about violence from terrorism to taekwondo. My name is Daniel and I will be producing short podcasts about violence, crime and war. I have no set plan or chronological order and I'll cover different issues in each episode. I intend to focus on the social and political history of violence, so more on the root causes and effects of a war than on the strategy and execution, although obviously I'll cover a bit of both. Okay, so first of all, I have to define what I mean by violence. In the broadest sense, violence is a use of force to hurt someone or some group. That is usually taken to mean physical force, although people have made arguments that less tangible actions related to economics, language and culture can become a form of violence. For example, racist language isn't physical, but it can be considered a form of violence. Indeed, certain uses of language count as assault in many legal jurisdictions. This is true, but I think that physical and non-physical violence are also closely linked. One of these, one of the reasons racist language is so damaging is that it can legitimise physical violence against minorities. Similarly, structural violence in the form of exploitative economic relationships are violent in part because they create the conditions in which physical harm occurs. So while not all violence has to take the form of immediate physical assault, we are thinking about things which do cause tangible harm. Next, we should discuss different types of violence. This is an insanely complicated and contested issue with numerous different equally valid ways of categorising violence. The World Health Organization has one useful characterization, which I'll quote from now. Self-directed violence refers to violence in which the perpetrator and the victim are the same individual, and is subdivided into self-abuse and suicide. I probably won't be discussing this type too much, unless it relates to other historical events or examples. Interpersonal violence refers to violence between individuals, and is subdivided into family and intimate partner violence, as well as community violence. The former category includes child maltreatment, intimate partner violence and elder abuse, while the latter is broken down into acquaintance and stranger violence and includes youth violence, street brawls, assaults by strangers and violence related to property crimes. So the first type is what we commonly refer to as domestic violence. The second part is much broader. Um, It could involve individual violence or possibly even small, loosely organised groups such as youth gangs. Collective violence refers to violence committed by larger groups of individuals and can be subdivided into social, political and economic violence. This is what the bulk of this podcast will be about, given that it covers the most historically important phenomena. Political violence is the easiest to define. This is things like war and terrorism. This is usually the most organised and most destructive type of violence. Just think of the Second World War, for example. Social violence is collective and organised, but not explicitly political. This would include organised crime. However, as we'll probably discuss, crime and politics are often very closely linked in practice, with the border between political and societal violence being pretty murky. Finally, economic violence refers to more structural and passive forms of exploitation. These are not generally definable events like wars, but rather semi-permanent aspects of a society. For example, slavery or the exploitation of undocumented migrants would be the best example of this. This typology is a good starting point, but it's important to remember that this applies to violence in the modern world. There are certain types of violence which have evolved a lot over time, and some of which have nearly disappeared from modern life. 
For example, the practice of human sacrifice is a particular type of institutionalised social violence which doesn't have a clear modern equivalent. There are also forms of violence which only exist in the modern world. For example, terrorism arguably requires mass media to function correctly, while mass public shootings are only possible using ubiquitous modern technology. All violence occurs within a particular social and historical context, so we should be careful about applying contemporary morality and a modern understanding of the world to events far in the past. Basically, we should try to avoid being ahistorical. A final category which I would like to bring up to illustrate this is recreational violence, which is a common phenomenon throughout history, which has nevertheless changed and evolved significantly. Recreational violence can be legal or illegal, and may involve willing participants, or both willing and unwilling. But the idea here is that it's undertaken as a form of public entertainment. Often, recreational violence will be incredibly professionalised, as is the case in modern boxing or mixed martial arts, or even arguably the NFL and ice hockey. The historical example which springs to mind is, of course, Roman gladiatorial combat which was the premier sport of its day, alongside the also quite violent chariot racing. Much like modern prize fighting, people would fight for fame and money. Often the gladiators were slaves, but many chose to go into this profession, and the best fighters could earn freedom and unimaginable wealth. But is the kind of violence undertaken by gladiators really comparable to modern sports? Maybe not. You could argue that violence in modern sports is incidental, and what we are really enjoying is the skill and athleticism of the participants. The difference is that the Roman Colosseum was all about violence. A single combat, people fighting animals, animals fighting animals, Christians being eaten alive by lions, Christians being tortured. Modern boxing is sport with a bit of sanitised violence thrown in. Gladiatorial combat was just violence with a sin veneer of competition. When people went to the Colosseum, it was to see blood. It was for the spectacle rather than the sport. Another thing which makes it different is the presence of structural or economic violence inherent in the gladiatorial system. Most, although not all, of the participants were slaves. So not only were they committing violent acts, in many cases they were forced to participate. The entire industry was premised on a system of violent exploitation, long before the fight even started. Modern sport isn't like that. Or is it? It's no surprise that professional fighters have traditionally come from poorer communities. Rich people with economic prospects don't have to pursue a career where you get punched in the face for a living. Beyond this, it's often people from politically marginalised communities who engaged in boxing. In Victorian England, this was often poor people, but in pre-World War II Europe, it was often Jewish people, as they were shut of many industries. African-American ex-slaves were also early boxing stars, with Italian and Irish fighters becoming overrepresented as new babes of immigration brought new groups of people to America. So not only is this about people fighting their way out of poverty, it's also historically been about people with few economic options and no political power. An exploitative social-economic relationship which is weakened but not completely disappeared today. While the highest level boxers are some of the best paid people in the world, journeymen aren't always well compensated. The ultimate fighting championship is also rife with exploitation, with pretty poor returns on a fighter's investment in training, especially considering the risk of injury. Some people would argue that the structural conditions of modern capitalism drive certain communities to disproportionately engage in these risky, violent industries. Just as in ancient Rome, recreational violence is embedded within a wider form of structural economic exploitation. 
Of course, I'm not suggesting for a second that combat sport athletes are slaves or that they're treated as badly as Roman gladiators. The point I'm making is that we have to consider the historical context which something like gladiatorial combat came from, and we should also think carefully about the modern social structures that we take for granted. When we look at forms of violence across different ages, they have similarities and differences. We shouldn't glibly compare them, but neither should we assume that they're completely different. We should instead try to understand how these violent spectacles relate to the society that they occur in. And just as we look back on gladiators as being some horrifically violent aberration, so people in the future might look back at the UFC or the NFL as being pointless wastes of human potential, barbaric activities in an outdated and exploitative economic structure. A second thing to bear in mind when we talk about different kinds of violence is the inherently political decisions which we have to make with our language. The way we label and describe different forms of violence often means making value judgments or making implications about the root cause. Take terrorism, for example. There are over a hundred recorded definitions, most of which have certain core features. Most agree that terrorism has to have some political purpose or be part of a wider ideological movement. This separates it from day-to-day murder or from non-political mass attacks like the Columbine shooting. Some definitions see terrorism as something which is directed against civilians, while others think that acts of terrorism can be committed against soldiers and the police as well. This has immediate political implications. For example, were attacks against Western troops in Iraq acts of terror or acts of war? Categorising these as terrorist attacks subtly grants legitimacy to the Western occupation, meaning that our language, intentionally or unintentionally, signals a political opinion about the war. Similarly, Hunger strikes broke out in the 70s and 80s in Ireland over whether members of the Irish Republican Army who were convicted of terror charges should be treated as prisoners of war or as common criminals. This is one of the most famous incidents of the Troubles, leading to international attention and 10 deaths from starvation. So the terrorism versus freedom fighter versus common criminal distinction is an issue of propaganda, but also of law. A more contemporary example which pops up again and again is how quickly incidents are labelled as terrorism if the perpetrator is part of an ethnic minority. In the United States, mass shootings by white gunmen are more likely to be treated as spontaneous acts of violence, with the media often focusing on the gunmen's mental health issues. Meanwhile, similar attacks by Muslims would quickly be viewed as part of a wider terrorist conspiracy. A good example of this recently is the spate of attacks by incels, or people affiliated with the men's rights movement. These people communicate online in large networks, and they have a relatively clear ideology based on anti-feminism. Their attacks deliberately use the media to play to a wider audience, a defining feature of terrorism. The attacks used are similar to other terrorist attacks the world over, running through crowds with a car or opening fire in public places. If this was an individual from a network of religious extremists, or even someone from the traditional far left or far right, they would be treated unequivocally as a terrorist. But there is still a debate over the issue, partly because this is such a novel movement, but primarily because the perpetrators are mostly white. I'm using white versus Muslim or white versus ethnic minority to make this point, but it isn't really about that kind of specific relationship. Really, the issue is about insiders versus outsiders. The label of terrorist is often used as a way of stating that the violence came from outside our society. This could mean that it's a religious outsider, or a racial outsider, or just a political outsider. Edward Said described this well. 
Terrorism is the vaguest and yet for that reason the most precise of concepts. This is not at all to say that terrorism does not exist, but rather to suggest that its existence has occasioned a whole new signifying system as well. Terrorism signifies first, in relation to us, the alien and gratuitously hostile force. It is destructive, systematic and controlled. It is a web, a network, a conspiracy, run from Moscow via Bulgaria, Beirut, Libya, Tehran and Cuba. It is capable of anything. Most of all, terrorism has come to signify our view of everything in the world that seems inimical to our interests, army, policy or values. End quote. So, when talking about what violence is, or about different kinds of violence, we should always be aware that our language signifies something. This is unavoidable. There isn't a neutral way to talk about violence, and attempts to make our language completely apolitical are doomed to fail. All we can do is try to be clear about the assumptions we're making, and be sceptical of anyone who says they have an easy answer. So, a final word on the plan going forward. I will try to put out an episode every two weeks with a 15 to 25 minute length. I don't really expect this to blow up the podcasting world since I have a voice like a depressed Shrek, but if this takes off then I'll do some more episodes. Um, Episodes won't be chronological, I'll just do whatever comes up. If I have a big topic that I'm going to cover then I might do a series, for example on the development of terrorism over time or the development of counterinsurgency programmes. If anyone has any suggestions for a topic, then I'd love to hear them. Contact details will be in the show notes. Uh, Thanks for listening this far. Um, And yeah, I hope you enjoy. Bye.